As most of you know, Palm Sunday is the, the Sunday before Easter, and uh, it is the day when we celebrate and reflect on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to reflect and we're going to celebrate. So let's pray before, before I start. God, we thank you um, for all that you've done for us, all that you continue to do. We just pray now that as we dig into your word, that you would open our eyes, that you would teach us, and that you would help us to know more of you, not just so that we know more of you, but so that we can be better followers of you, God, so that we can go and we can teach others. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. Okay, so I want to start today by giving some context to our passage before we get into the Luke passage. Um, So we're going to go ahead and we're going to skip ahead one book to the book of John. And John, in chapter 1, starts with kind of this strange philosophical description of Jesus. He says, in the beginning, I've got to remember to turn my slides, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's kind of a mouthful. Um, it's not it's not easy to understand, right? You could spend a whole you could spend a whole day just thinking about that, and uh, it's not a it's not a couple easy couple of verses to wrap your head around. But in verse eleven, John says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He Jesus came to his own Israel, but his own did not receive him. And why did they not receive him? Why did Jesus? Uh, what did Jesus say or do that turned people off? What caused them to reject him as their Messiah and Savior? Well, not everyone rejected him, but the majority did, and we have to ask why. So in order to ask why he was rejected, we need to first ask, why did he come? What was he doing here? As I mentioned before, I had the opportunity to preach at Christmas, and I, that message was, about, uh, was from Luke 2, where the angels tell the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus came to bring glory to God, and he came to bring peace. But if you remember, that peace was not for everyone. And it, that peace is, was and is only for those who choose to follow him, for those with whom he is pleased. Um, and, and it's only for those who choose to make him king of their lives. And this king has a kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. Jesus came to glorify God and to bring peace, but the angels only proclaim this. They don't explain how he's going to bring this peace, and how he's going to glorify God. So the hearers, the shepherds, and everyone the shepherds told are left with the angel's message uh, um, and, and possibly a look at the baby. Some of them got to look at, at Jesus when he was a baby. But how would they know who this Messiah was and who he would be and, and how he would bring this peace and how he would glorify God. So I want to talk about first century Jewish understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be 
and what he was supposed to do. Before I do that, though, I I want us first to be clear what our understanding of who the Messiah is and what he came to do. How does Jesus achieve what the angels proclaimed? Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. How does Jesus glorify God and bring peace? Jesus achieves what the angels said he would by proclaiming the kingdom of God. His mission and the purpose of his ministry on earth was to proclaim the kingdom of God, which ultimately led to his death on the cross. His mission and his ministry on earth was all about proclaiming the kingdom of God. He announced its arrival, he taught about it, and he demonstrated what the kingdom of God is. In Luke 4, Jesus has been healing people, he's been casting out demons, and then as he often did, he retreats to a solitary place to pray and to rest. And we see the crowds come looking for him. Verse 42 says, the people came looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. And Jesus says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' mission and ministry on earth was all about the kingdom of God. Luke 8.1 says, He went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is what he did. This was his ministry. He says it himself. He was sent here for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? How did he preach the kingdom of God? Well, some of you remember our sermon series from the summer. It was on the parables. And um, Jesus' explanation of the kingdom often came through parables. What a strange way, though, to share the good news, right? He didn't come out and just plainly teach them. He didn't walk them step by step, point by point, through, through his messages and his teaching. Can you imagine if I just came up here and told a parable and then I sat down? Or if Pastor James came up here um, and his entire sermon was just a long story that he never explained? That would be strange, right? So when Jesus began some of his parables, he would say, um, this is what the kingdom of God is like, or we shall, see, we shall say the kingdom of God is like such and such and such. And through these seemingly random stories, Jesus teaches what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a farmer scattering seed. It's like yeast in bread. And you have to wonder what people were thinking. What is he talking about? He who has ears to hear, let him hear? This guy's crazy. We, us, we have hundreds of years of people explaining the parables to us. Um, But they didn't have anyone. Jesus just tells the parable, and he moves on. Um, There was no SoundCloud to go back and listen again. Um, There was no books explaining these parables. They didn't have scholars dissecting them. 
because this, this teaching was so new. So let's look at an example of Jesus' teaching in the kingdom of God. In John 10, Jesus is talking to a crowd about a sheep and a shepherd. And the sheep recognizing the shepherd's voice, but not the voice of strangers. Verse 6 says, Jesus spoke to them using this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Instead of simply and, and plainly explaining to the crowd that he's talking about the kingdom of God and himself as the way to enter the kingdom of God, he just keeps talking about sheep and thieves and I am the gate and my father knows me and I know my father. And the people are just like, what is he talking about? Verse 19, again, there was division among the Jews because of Jesus' message. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and insane. Why would you listen to him? But others replied, these are not the words of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? He had just healed a blind man. So that's what they're talking about. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and demanded, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus says in verse 25, I already told you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf. But because you are not my sheep, you refuse to believe. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. At this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus responded, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, said the Jews, but for blasphemy because you who are a man declare yourself to be God. And of course, if you know this passage, he escapes. It's not yet his time to die. But my point is this. He's teaching them about the kingdom, and he's, he's, he's going to teach them about it in a way that makes them really think about it. That's, that's why he taught in parables. But a lot of people were frustrated. They wanted him to explain everything. But when he does explain it, when he shows them the reality and what he's really talking about, what do they do? They try to kill him. They're not ready to hear it. So the angels told us in Luke 2 that he's coming to bring peace and he's coming to glorify God. But we need to ask, was Jesus really here to bring peace? Because it looks more like division here in this passage we just read. What does Jesus say in Matthew 10, 34? He says, Do not suppose that I come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. Okay. Does that just ruin my sermon there? <laughs> what is he talking about? What in the world were the angels talking about if Jesus is not here to bring peace? So let's take a deeper look at this because we know that Jesus often uses metaphor. And he uses story to communicate his teaching. Jesus is actually using metaphor here. And we know this because Palm Sunday is not about Jesus riding into Jerusalem with a sword in his hand. 
And we know this. We also know this because what he says in Matthew 10, 35. He says, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, etc., etc. He goes on and on. Jesus knew that his message was divisive. He knew that his teaching was difficult, not only to understand, but to accept and to follow. The rich young ruler couldn't do it. Most of the Pharisees couldn't accept it. Hundreds, maybe thousands of disciples left him in a single day, we read in John 6. And he knew that his followers would face opposition from friends, from strangers, and from family. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The message of the angels was not Messiah is going to bring peace to the whole earth. It's Messiah is going to bring peace to those with whom he is pleased. In other words, those who accept his message and follow him. Jesus is the door to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the path to the kingdom of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says in John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 10, the passage we just read, he's trying to explain how to enter the kingdom of God, but they don't get it. And to be honest, I feel like almost no one understood a lot of the things Jesus was talking about until after he was gone. It took months, years even, of reflecting on his teaching and trying to be able to comprehend and piece everything together. And it also took the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of his followers. And that's not going to happen for a while. So, yes, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is going to lead to peace and assurance and hope, but it's not immediate because they don't immediately understand it. It sounds counterintuitive, but Jesus' job was not to make people understand his teaching about the kingdom. Not all of his teaching is, is hard to understand, but... Most of his parables were not easy teaching, and most of his parables were about the kingdom of God. So he, he doesn't really want them to get it, away, get it right away, but I don't think it would make sense anyway if they got it right away because he needs to live it out in front of them. It's a slow reveal. He teaches them, he shows them, and then he completes his work on the cross. And that takes time to happen, and it takes time to process what he's doing. So Jesus achieves what the angel said, number one, by proclaiming the kingdom of God, but number two, by also demonstrating the kingdom of God in his works. Jesus not only proclaims the kingdom of God, he not only teaches them, but he also demonstrates it. He teaches them through his works. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. He not only announces the arrival of the kingdom, he teaches what it is, and then he backs up his teaching. He supports it by showing what the kingdom is. It's a kingdom of healing. It's a kingdom where death turns to life. It's a kingdom filled with joy because of what it offers. 
healing, forgiveness of sin, and a new way of doing things. Jesus is living these things out. He is healing sickness and disease. He is raising the dead. He is on several occasions being invited to to joyous occasions, feasts and celebrations. And, and with these feasts and celebrations, they, have to, they happen so often um, that people kind of start to complain about it. We see John the Baptist's disciples come and ask Jesus in Matthew nine fourteen, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And what does Jesus say? How can guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? We see Jesus in other passages compare the kingdom of God to a wedding and a feast. People aren't sad at weddings and feasts. They are joyous occasions, right? So how could the disciples be sad while the king is with them here now, ushering in something new? Fasting in Jesus' day was a a way of mourning the kingdom of God had, had not arrived. It was a way of looking back to the disasters that Israel had been through and to humble oneself in repentance. It was also a way to pray for God's mercy and for his rescue, but, but Jesus was there to rescue him, rescue them. He was there to usher in the kingdom of God. So how could they not celebrate and be glad? The Pharisees also complained about it, we see in Luke five, thirty and 31. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His message of the kingdom was a message of repentance. Repent, turn from your sinful ways, be healed and forgiven, and come and join a new thing that I am ushering in. So yes, it was that. It was a message of repentance, but it was also a message of celebration. He was invited to people's houses because they had repented and they wanted to celebrate with him. So we see that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. He's demonstrating it before them with these miracles and and with his works and with the way that he approaches life even. But the leaders of Israel and even John the Baptist and his disciples, are, they're not getting it. In Luke 10, Jesus casts out a demon, and there's a crowd watching, and he knows they're questioning how he's doing these things. Some even go as far as saying he's doing these things by the power of darkness. And they want to see a sign from heaven. They want fire to come down, just like what happened with Elijah. They want a sign. They want him to prove who he is. But Jesus tells them that, basically, look, Satan is not divided against himself. If he was, his kingdom would not survive. But I'm here telling you that God the Father is responsible for everything I do, and it's the power of his kingdom that is bringing healing and setting people free. They still don't believe him. They want to see a sign. And the crazy thing is he's giving them signs. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. 
The Pharisees aren't doing that. Luke 11:20 says, "But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you." Just the fact that he himself, the Messiah, is present and ministering through the Holy Spirit, driving out demons, forgiving sin, healing the sick, raising the dead, shows that the kingdom is present. It shows that God is working. But they don't want to believe it. Why can't they accept it? Even John the Baptist is questioning what's going on. Matthew 11, 1 through 6 says, Meanwhile, John heard in prison about the works of Christ, and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? Verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Even John the Baptist, who prepared the way for him, couldn't see it. And the disciples, I mean, the disciples believed that he was the Messiah, but they don't really know what that means. In Mark 10, James and John ask to sit at his right and his left. They think that after the Romans are conquered, Jesus will be king and they want to be in positions of authority. They're still thinking in terms of worldly rule and reign. On the road to Emmaus, the disciples are still confused. This was after Jesus' death. They thought that this was the conquering Messiah and he died like a criminal. Luke 24, 21 says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. In other words, He still hasn't risen from the dead like he said he would. They're starting to doubt. But it was Jesus they were talking to on the road to Emmaus. They couldn't see it. They couldn't recognize him. Even after his resurrection, the disciples still don't get it. They have this preconceived idea of who the Messiah is. They've been taught for centuries who the Messiah is. It's become tradition. It's become accepted. Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? In some ways, they're not wrong. The Old Testament or the scriptures, as they would have known them, talk about the Messiah as a warrior king. Like I said, they've been taught for centuries who the Messiah is supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. We have it right in front of us, right? They didn't have the Gospels written out like we do. They didn't have Paul's letters explaining in depth who the Messiah was and what he accomplished. So we can't really look down on them or or criticize them too much. They were going off of what all first century Jews believed about the Messiah, that he was going to come, and set them free, and establish them as a nation that he would be king of, and that he would rule the, rule the earth. And when Jesus returns, we know that that will happen when he comes again. We know that now, but they didn't understand that there are parts of the scriptures 
there are other parts of the scriptures that talk about Messiah, like in Psalms and Isaiah. And Isaiah describes him as a sacrificial lamb, a lamb led to the slaughter. I've always wondered after Jesus died how all these things Jesus said must have come back to their minds. And then he's resurrected and taken up to heaven. And these things Jesus said must have flooded their minds and started making sense. That's what he meant. That's what he was talking about. We need to die like him? I wonder how long it took them to understand that he came to serve them. And in doing so, he was teaching them to serve. How long before they realized that the kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdoms of our world? And then he, he did things in a way that they didn't expect because he was doing something new. But he will return as the conquering Messiah they believed him to be. He will. We believe that, right? So Jesus achieves what the angels said by, number one, proclaiming the kingdom of God, number two, demonstrating the kingdom in his works, and number three, by living out the kingdom of God. Jesus lived out what he taught. He proclaimed it. He taught it. He demonstrated what it meant, and he lived it in all obedience to the Father, even to the cross. Jesus lived out what it means to live in the kingdom of God. The first shall be last, he taught, and he lived that. He taught that whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and he lived that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He lived that too. And by poor in spirit, he meant humble. He could have called down the angels and wiped out everyone who opposed him, but he didn't. He submitted to the Father. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. No sword in his hand, no army behind him, no angels singing in the sky. But there was singing that day, right? Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd understood that day that Jesus was presenting himself as Messiah. He was presenting himself as their king. This was his moment. He wasn't hiding it anymore. This was him proclaiming himself Messiah. And what they didn't understand, though, was what becoming their Messiah and Savior was going to require. It wasn't defeating and expelling Rome because he, was, he wasn't coming to save them from a physical oppression. He was coming to save them from sin and from death. Repent was his message, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he didn't storm the capital and wipe everybody out. He came in on a donkey And he continued in Jerusalem to peacefully proclaim what the kingdom looks like. It was and is a kingdom bringing peace, but not in the way that they thought. The kingdom of God is also a manifestation of the power of God. The sick are healed, the hungry are fed, the demons are cast out. At the same time, Jesus demonstrates that for all, For the kingdom of God to be fully realized in us, we must sacrifice our lives. 
He shows us that ushering in the reign and, sorry, in ushering in His reign and His kingdom, it's not about force and might. It's about surrender and death. Israel expects force and might. They expect the Messiah to come and to expel the Romans so that they could regain their dignity, so they could make Israel great again. Sounds familiar. And maybe expelling the Romans and making Israel great again is not a bad thing, but that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to flip our thinking upside down. Israel wanted the tangible. They wanted to be vindicated. They wanted revenge. They wanted their suffering to end. And who doesn't want suffering to end? But Jesus came to live out suffering in front of us. He came to show us that most won't accept the message of his kingdom, of his way of doing things. He came to show that following him means we will be betrayed. We will be misunderstood and mistreated by the majority. But some will get it. Some will understand and have their eyes opened. And some will be saved. And for those few, it's worth it. Jesus wasn't riding in in triumph in the way that an earthly king would have. He was riding into Jerusalem to die to sacrifice his life for ours. But let me, be cl- let me be clear. He was riding into Jerusalem in triumph. He was about to triumph over another kingdom, not Rome, not an earthly king or kingdom, but sin and death itself. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's this big event, singing and palm branches and cheering. And then what happens? Mark tells us in the book of Mark that it's late and he goes back to Bethany. He leaves Jerusalem. Luke strings the events together so it seems like Jesus goes directly to the temple to cast out the money changers, but that's not what happened. He just leaves. It seems pretty anticlimactic. I mean, he's just entered Jerusalem as the Messiah. And everybody recognized it. And then he just leaves. I bet you people were upset. So maybe we can understand now why the same crowd that praised him and hailed him as their Messiah turned their backs on him a few days later. They just wanted him gone. Crucify him. If he's saying he's the Messiah and he's not going to do anything, get rid of him. He's supposed to get rid of the Romans. He's supposed to restore the throne of David. He's supposed to come and establish God's kingdom. Ah, but what does that mean, establish God's kingdom? Does that mean getting rid of the Romans? Does that mean making Israel great? The kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. Israel expected the kingdom of God meant God's reign and rule in Israel, but we know, we know it's not physical. Not yet, anyway. It will be when he returns in the future. Right now, it's the rule of God in the hearts of his people, in us. 
This was the kingdom that most people in Israel wanted. They wanted the physical kingdom. They wanted Rome to be removed forcefully. They wanted the Messiah to prove that they were God's people and that no one should mess with them. They wanted to say, we're the best. We're God's chosen people, and no one has the right to occupy our land. They wanted their pride indulged, and when it wasn't, they not only rejected Jesus, but they turned on him. I started this message today with John 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And why? Why did they not receive him? Because they wanted someone else. They were looking for and hoping for someone else. And they missed him. They missed all that he wanted to do. In Luke 19, right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he tells us that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Verse 41 says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't see it. You missed it. Why did they reject him? Because they wanted something else. They wanted someone else. And as I was researching for this sermon, I came across another author who had written um, on the same subject, and, and he concludes so eloquently that I'm just going to steal this and read this for you guys. So let me read this as I close out. In our Christian lives, as we grow older, we all encounter situations in which God does not fulfill our expectations. Perhaps he doesn't bring you a marriage partner. Perhaps you find that your marriage hasn't lived up to its expectations. Or maybe you've been passed over for a promotion or a position you really deserve. Or maybe illness or tragedy has struck your life in an unexpected way. And the temptation in all these situations is to bail out of what the Christian faith teaches and do things your own way. You marry that non-Christian who's in love with you. You file for divorce. You grow resentful and bitter over missed opportunities. You give up confidence in God's love for you and you no longer trust him. As I've grown older as a Christian, I've seen these sorts of things happen again and again in the lives of Christian friends. When God doesn't live up to our expectations, then we jettison God and we do things the way that they, we think they should be done. Or we resent him for not giving us what we want. And what I want to say here is Jesus is Lord. He's under no obligation to live up to your expectations. If he chooses to give you a life of suffering and hardship, of disappointment and failure, he is Lord. 
So many of us seem to think that if Christ doesn't fit our expectations, then we'll just reject him, as the crowds in Jerusalem did. But Christ is Lord, and he doesn't have to fit our expectations of him. Christ never promised his, promised his followers a happy life. The disciple is not above his master, and the master has, cho- has chosen the road to Golgotha. If you are called to tread that same path, that is the master's prerogative. It's his right. What I'm saying is that we must tailor our expectations to what God decrees, not try to tailor God to fit our expectations. Christ is Lord, and he knows what is best. If we try to make him fit our expectations, what is acceptable to us, or else we reject him, that is the path to self-destruction. We must not be like the people of Jerusalem who hailed Christ as their king just so long as he fit their image of what a king should be. Let us rather acknowledge him truly as our king, our Lord, our sovereign, and receive from his hand whatever he decrees. So I started this sermon with John chapter 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But what does verse 12 say? Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss what he's done and what he continues to do and what he wants to continue to do in each of our lives. Let's pray.